When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode of The Vault from September 2019, Benjamin Moser talks about the experience of writing about Susan Sontag. Moser's 2009 biography of the Brazilian writer Clarice Lispector was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. On May 4, 2020, Sontag, her life and work, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Biography. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here because the Institute was a big part of this. I got to live in a really lovely apartment right down the street, Washington Muse, for three or four months. And there was Oto right next door that would deliver food very nicely when I was doing interviews. Because if you know anything about Susan Sontag or you know anything about New York City, you know that these people talk a lot, you know. And sometimes you would be there for six hours and you'd be like, we need some beets with the goat cheese or whatever. And they would come right over and it was really just a huge help to my work because it is many years and it's many dollars and it's many airplanes and all that. And to see so many of you here like Lori Anderson and, and Joe Nacachella, Sarah McNally, Ben Taylor, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, but people who I've spoken to and who helped in all sorts of ways, Gordon Rogoff, who are really with me throughout this, this project, which has been such a pleasure to do. Because of you being who you are, people who either knew Susan personally often or who knew intimately her work or her world, I wanted to talk about something a little bit different than I would normally talk about when I'm sort of introducing her, because a lot of this book is about, for me, it's been about taking her into a new generation, telling about her and her work and her legacy to people who don't know about her, which is surprisingly a lot. You know, when I was teaching at UCLA, which is where her archive is, the kids I was teaching who are graduate students in literature had never heard of the siege of Sarajevo or of the Bosnian War, which for me feels like <laughs> 25 minutes ago. But you really realize how quickly these things get forgotten. We calculated yesterday that, in fact, kids who are now in college were not born on 9-11. This is for us, um, I don't see anyone who doesn't remember 9-11 here, I don't think. <laughs> no offense. But uh, one of the things that I find really compelling about my experience, and I hope that the experience of, 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 of reading it for, for other people, is how many things have changed since Sontag was alive, since she was around, since she was writing. She would be almost 90. Yeah, she'd be 86. It's funny to see this, this picture on the cover, which is probably taken, it looks like Sixth Avenue or somewhere. It's Richard Avedon. It's 1976, 75. This looks like a really contemporary person, but in fact, I was probably not born when this picture was taken. And I'm not that young, you know. You see her as someone who's of our time, which she is, but she's also not. I have certainly had lots of bad experiences of watching American politics, as we all have, unfortunately. But um, I think that in the Obama years, we did think that things were getting better. I mean, we were certainly aware of everything that was not good and that needed to be improved, but it wasn't the same mood. And I think that this is fascinating to think about the empathy and the 
the work of thought that goes into writing a book like this. Because Susan Sontag is born in 1933. She's born two weeks after Hitler comes to power in Germany. And so what's the great drama of her childhood is the victory over Hitler and the victory of the American alliance and the American armies over fascism. And when that generation comes of age, which is in the late 40s, early 50s, American literature is not what it later becomes. It has a, a moment that I think was comparable to American literature 10 or 20 years ago, which is that it's really about you. It's, it's Jack Kerouac going out on the road. It's Allen Ginsberg. It, it's the kind of private drama and the politics that had been so important before recede, at least from the famous books that we think of in the 50s. And that's because I think people saw some positive change. You know, you had the rise of the black civil rights movement. You had a rise of a new sort of feminism. You had Jews being allowed to work at law firms, you know, things that we sort of forget were not the case. I mean, even my father got out of law school in 1972. He knew there were firms you just wouldn't apply to. But that was changing. And there was a kind of optimism of this rising generation that was symbolized by John F. Kennedy. And um, there's a kind of liberation in the air. And Sontag comes to stand for that liberation for all sorts of people. And often, I mean, I think that the most famous moment that she really becomes somebody who stands for this new young sensibility is when she publishes Notes on Camp, which later becomes one of the iconic texts of the gay liberation movement, which will get going just a few years later. I, I wanted to come at, bring it back to politics a little bit because when you read her early writings, politics are pretty absent. She's writing a lot about herself and her love affairs and what she's reading and the film she's going to see. That seems pretty common. I mean, it's, it's a generalization, but I think it, it stands that people were doing their own thing and they were doing all sorts of researches into their sexualities and into drugs, which were starting to come up like LSD, which had not really existed until then. And they were doing so in a country that had it's funny, you hear it time and time again, it was racist, capitalist, and imperialist. That was the triumvirate that was the left critique of the United States, and which I think, I don't know, I hope nobody here would necessarily disagree with that now, but it was in a context of hopefulness. And then the Vietnam War bursts out, and you see in Sontag's life a parting of the waters. She becomes radicalized and she becomes politicized in a way that becomes very violent. In some of her rhetoric, which a lot of the right wing, it's very funny, actually. I, I expected some right wing haters to come out and talk about how Susan Sontag was an enemy of America or something, but um, they haven't yet. I'm kind of disappointed because, boy, they hated her in the 60s. You know, she was like Jane Fonda and she was like all these people who were these, especially if they were women um, and especially when they were good looking women, because this was especially with Jane Fonda, but Sontag as well, were presented in very sexualized contexts. If you look at the, the cartoons of Sontag in Hanoi, She's a whore for communism. It was something that she really wrestled with. When she says in 68, she goes to Hanoi and she writes this fascinating essay that like some of the best things Sontag writes isn't actually that good. It's just fascinating to see how her mind is working because she's trying to figure this out and she switches halfway through the essay from this thing. She talks about tractor parts and all this. And then it's like she can't stand it. She has to talk about herself because she is trying to discover what is really happening in Vietnam. Because she knows it only as a metaphor through the New York Times and through the American media. She follows it passionately, as so many people did. But she doesn't actually know what it is. When she gets there, she realizes, I don't know who these people are. I don't understand their language. I don't, they don't, know, I don't know anything about them. 
They don't know anything about me. She even says they all look alike. Do I look alike to them? You know, do they not understand that I'm special? It's kind of touching because it is funny. I mean, I'm someone who I've lived a lot of my life in other countries. And it is funny that as soon as you get out of the customs in any other country, you, you, you lose a big part of your identity. And especially in a war, uh, wartime place that was that distant culturally and geographically as Vietnam was. So this experience absolutely radicalizes her and she becomes a symbol of radicalism, even though in her own writing, she's still very much doubtful about it. She doesn't really have an answer to it. Because of course, you could, it's, it's one thing to not like imperialism and not think it's a good idea to bomb innocent civilians. But it's another thing if you're a writer and you're an artist, you're a citizen, to actually formulate a response to that. And that's something that she really struggles with, as so many people did. And when she starts to write about politics, she always confesses her incapacity to do it. She really says every time, I'm not sure about this, which is very funny because she was identified with certainty and with almost aggressive knowledge of everything. She always had the answer. In fact, when you read her writings, both her public writings and her private writings, that's not the case. She actually doesn't present herself that way, particularly about politics. About culture, she does, but it's a bit different. She has these stereotypes that come up and that she gets kind of embarrassed by. There's a caricature of Lyndon Johnson scratching his balls that she mentions, which was true. He did do that in public, which was now we would sort of dream of that. That was like, you know, the worst thing that was happening. She doesn't mention that. On the other hand, this is the same man who passed the two greatest pieces of civil rights legislation that nobody since Lincoln had been able to do. She, she mentions the Allen Ginsberg kind of literary idea of America as Moloch, as this, this colossus of, of, of money and, and the blood in the eyes and everything, which, you know, nobody questions that that is part of the story. It's just not the whole story. In 73, she goes to Israel and she makes a film that I think very few people have ever really written about or even watched, although it is on YouTube. Well, I liked it a lot because her earlier films are these sort of Bergman-esque films that she makes in Sweden. It's a difference between these abstractions and this kind of personal artistic journey and actually trying to look at something real. And she goes and she films these bodies and just body after body baking in the sun of the Sinai. And it's horrifying, but it really is a viscerally successful film, I think. It's it's remarkably pro-Palestinian, even though it's also not anti-Israeli, which is something that um, I think we should all achieve in our writing about that issue that you can actually be for Palestine and also for Israel. So that film becomes a kind of way of having the subtlety that comes into her later uh, political writings and including some of her most intriguing writings because they're not included in any of her later anthologies, which are her writings about feminism. There's a famous essay from the New York Review from 1975 called Fascinating Fascism which I'm sure you've read, some of you, um, about Lenny Riefenstahl, which is a very interesting essay because Lenny Riefenstahl is in some sense an easy target. And actually someone said, it's quoted in the book, says um, Riefenstahl didn't hate anyone, not even Hitler, as much as she hated Susan Sontag, which I felt like was kind of a, I don't know, sort of a worthwhile thing to achieve. But she also at the same time in this essay is something that no one I don't think had ever noticed or written about. She accuses homosexual men of fetishizing Nazism, which is a really creepy thing to read and really a hard thing to read. Uh, again, she seems to be struggling between trying to figure out how to look at these things like Nazism or fascism or, or, or cruelty or war 
that are then commodified and sexualized and brought into the consumer world of America. If you watch that famous film, it's also on YouTube called Town Bloody Hall, which is really fun. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. It's, it's Jermaine Greer and it's um, Cynthia Ozick and then um, Norman Mailer. Well, he's the, he's the enemy. Diana Trilling. Yeah, it's, it's a whole sort of pantheon of, of, of second wave feminisms all in this one room. Jill Johnson, who says in that all women are lesbians except the ones who don't know it. And actually, fascinatingly, Jill Johnson had only come out of the closet that same year. And so, and the only lesbian she knew in New York City was Susan Sontag. And so you can see, not only is that kind of weird, but it's actually fascinating to think how invisible gay people were, even in progressive left-wing cultural corners of New York society. Sontag's wrestling with this, with this question of what to do in politics and what to think about it. And what I write in the book that I found fascinating as, as a discovery, I think, of my own journey with thinking about her was that in the 80s, she starts becoming a liberal. She stops being as extreme politically as she had been. And she starts trying to formulate a way to be an activist as a citizen and as an artist that helps in a really concrete way because the abstractions get, well, it's just frustrating. And I think that, you know, intellectuals are always trying to find a way to be involved in their communities and in there. And, but, but the problem with intellectuals is that intellectuals are too subtle. Uh, when you do this kind of, of PR stuff, it's very hard to formulate a very simple standpoint. Well, a lot of things happened in the 80s that, that challenged Susan, and one of them is AIDS, which I, I, I could get into at length, but I, I won't. One of the things that she becomes involved in very vocally is the response to Salman Rushdie's fatwa, which uh, she's president of American Pen, and she organizes a a reading of this book. And she invites all these famous American writers to come read from this book because everybody's attacking this book. But of course, nobody's read it. It wasn't even published yet. And this, for Salman, was a huge source of moral support because he was being denounced by the Pope, by you know the, the chief rabbi of Britain, by an entire nation of Iran. People were being killed. His translators were being killed. His publishers were being shot at. It was a very terrifying time. And so you saw in this instance that this gesture of solidarity was extremely meaningful in a way that denouncing American imperialism in the pages of Partisan Review, I mean, it it's, doesn't really go that far often. At the same time that she's at, at Penn, she organizes something that I thought was great. She went to Seoul in South Korea, which was a country that was sort of democratizing, uh, but it was not sure that the, the dictatorship was actually going to, to stand down. And she organized a cocktail party in which the works of imprisoned South Korean writers were read. It was funny because I think Americans and people who live in comfortable countries think that culture can, is sort of more impotent than it really is. This was absolutely thrilling to people. And it got denounced by every minister in South Korea. And it really was just a cocktail party in a hotel with people reading poems. And Susan got more and more involved in these sorts of actions they were not radical. I mean, I, I, in the book, I say that she's, she, she becomes a liberal. Actually, she stood for freedom of speech. She stood for political democracy. She stood for opposition to racism. And when you saw how dangerous this becomes, there's all these new things that come. They're not that new, but they, you know, Islamic extremism. You have the, the, the dictatorships in Latin America, the dictatorship in South Africa, um, all these things that, that actually are much more sensitive to this kind of activism than people maybe realized. And, and Susan was somebody who catalyzed that opposition. I think Susan wanted to be in danger 
There's something about her. She writes as a very young woman and against interpretation about an essay by Michel Leris uh, that's called about art as a bullfight. Um, and he says that, what's the point of art? You're just sitting in Paris in your apartment writing your book. You know, it's fine, but it's not really that exciting. You need the equivalent, the fear the bullfighter has of being gored. She was always seeking that sensation because she had a very deep conviction from the time that she was a little girl when she had a game with her friend Merrill, who I, who I interviewed and who's in the book. Uh, how many years of their lives they would give up in order to let Stravinsky <laughs> live? And they were willing to die on the spot. They were like, no, three years is like, it's not enough. But like five years, maybe but four years, they decided was the right amount to give Stravinsky in exchange for their own lives. And this is kind of cute and we laugh and it's funny, but like, actually she really believed that. She believed that art and culture and human dignity were, were, were worth dying for. And she then goes to Sarajevo. And this is to me the heart of the book. Um, and I'm actually really disappointed that in the reviews people haven't, I wrote three whole chapters about it. So I feel like I didn't hide it under a rock, you know. Um, <laughs> but the absolutely heroic thing that she does, which is going to Sarajevo at a time of absolute abandonment, when everybody is watching on their televisions back home in, in Holland or in Rome or, or in New Jersey, watching this on CNN. And people do not know what to do. It's not that all these people in New Jersey were bad people. It's just they really, you know, I don't know what to do. And when I was in Sarajevo, um, one of the Bosnians who worked with her on the play that she ends up putting on Waiting for Godot said to me, talking, started talking about Syria. And he said, I think about Syria all the time. I don't know what I would have to do, how I would now go to Syria and sit with those people and share their pain and their suffering. How would I do that? And she did that for us. Sontag um, is always, at least in America, I think, she's associated with elite culture. She's associated with, you know, a fancy New York gallery or something. Or she's always looking like this in these leather jackets. But in Sarajevo, Sontag goes there and she sits with these people. And when I was at a marketplace in um, Sarajevo, which is under a, an overpass, it's just a, a, a big cement bridge. And the market is still there because that's where you could go and buy your vegetables and not get murdered, which is what was happening to those people. <clears throat> and I asked someone I was with who spoke Bosnian. I said, can you ask that woman? There's like a, a, a meat seller, just a lady selling meat at a little stall. And I said, I'm just curious if she knows who Susan Sontag is. Well, I mean, this woman was so offended that I would possibly think that she did not know who Susan Sontag was because she means so much to her. She told me all this stuff. I mean, she even was like talking about against interpretation and all this. And I was like... I was completely riveted by it because she said when the whole world was sitting there on their sofa watching us die, she came to be with us and she said to the world that we aren't barbarians, that we deserve human dignity too, that it's not okay for people based on their ethnicity to be rounded up and sent to concentration camps on live television. That's a liberal thing to do. It's not a radical thing to do. It's a liberal thing to do. And it's something that was way more meaningful to way more people than her previous writings. And the final thing that she does is when she's dying and the pictures from Abu Ghraib come out, which um, show American soldiers torturing Iraqis and not only torturing Iraqis, but recording it exactly as she had predicted and on photography, recording it and showing it off because those secret, those pictures were not secret. I mean, that's one of the things about Abu Ghraib that's important to remember is that that was designed for Facebook. There was no Instagram during Abu Ghraib, but like it was fun. And everybody's like making mug shots and there's these people like hanging from meat hooks. I mean, it's just, and, and you think that is 
what she is trying to convey, I, I guess, not quite from beyond the grave then, but, but, but pretty close, how we can educate ourselves as citizens and as, and as intellectuals and, and try to give people a frame in which to see a world in which these cruelties and these, these massacres and these wars and these horrible people just tend to carry on happily ever after. And for her, who also grew up with that same patriotic ideal, to see America be corrupted and perverted and, and its armies that were liberationist armies in our idea being turned into instruments of torture and death. It's not just a political disloyalty or a disagreement. It's a, it's a personal emotional betrayal. And I think that it becomes all the more important to look to Susan and her legacy to understand how her later writing can encourage us to stand up and resist that, even or maybe especially at times when we're feeling so emotionally raw. And I was saying earlier, you know, this book is it's 800 pages or whatever. It feels really short to me because <laughs> there's so much that's not in there. I mean, it's an incredibly rich subject. Part of my hope to the people who I hope will discover her through this is that they will pick up that idea of liberalism and of the productive resistance that we all as citizens can and should do. Thanks a lot. That's it from me. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.